Third Bell from the team of Nebraska. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. This is weekly Monday appearance, except owing to a scheduling conflict. This occurred on a Tuesday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in addition to the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, the Marlins, Dave Cameron remarked last week, the Marlins are one of the few remaining teams upon whom we can expect to make curious decisions. Since Dave Cameron made that probably uncontroversial statement, the Miami Marlins have signed two relief pitchers, Brad Ziegler and Junichi Tozawa. The market for relief pitchers being a thing of mystery. I asked Dave Cameron, is this a curious decision? Are these curious decisions by those Miami Marlins? Dave Cameron says, actually, uh, they're pretty reasonable signings, probably. Moving on, Shohei Otane is simultaneously perhaps the best hitter and best pitcher in the Japanese Baseball League. It would not be surprising to find him in the major leagues in the near future. However, the new CBA agreed to by the players and owners creates an unusual situation. The new CBA places restrictions on international bonus pools, but has somewhat vague language regarding how long after signing a player a team could sign that same player to an extension. Like a middle school dance, it's an awkward situation, and it's awkward in particular because Otani, on the open market, would receive a lot of American dollars. Cameron addresses that as well. Finally, it is no surprise that Dave Cameron is a robot, some sort of human robot, one finds in this edition of the program a moment where his programming experiences a glitch. And he requests that the host of the program merely just look at different baseball teams. Look at the Dodgers, look at the Cubs, look at the Nationals, uh, you know, even look at the Cardinals and Giants. That amusing interval and others, not unlike it in what's to follow. What's following most immediately is a sponsor's message, a beloved sponsor's message. The sponsor is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. Are you familiar with how the world is full Listener of both of work and hassle, populated on every street corner by work, and then on a different street corner hassle. Well, it's a fact, but both work and hassle are mitigated, perhaps entirely eliminated, for those who use SeatGeek. What SeatGeek does is to pull tickets available at all other sites on the entire internet, one assumes, pulls them into one place so you have save time and never miss a deal. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is assessed a grade based on value. So that like an early 21st century general manager who, in the meantime, for reasons of title inflation, has probably been promoted to president of that same team, you can exploit inefficiencies, in this case, in the ticket buying market. And of course, best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price, unlike StubHub. Unlike StubHub, what SeatGeek does is never to assess any fees and to show you the same price from the beginning to the end of a transaction. For having endured this message, listeners are entitled, entitled, I say, to a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter the promo code FANGRAPHS, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 if you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter that promo code FANGRAPHS today. Your nearest possible convenience with which... Utterance, we have reached almost the end of this introduction. We can move now to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs. And when does it begin? Right now. I went in with a couple of my friends uh, who live on our street, and we 
split a snowblower three ways because we yeah, all hate true. shoveling. And so we decided that the return on investment would be higher from us each spending 33% of a snowblower. Uh, so we were like, oh, this is great. Then we'll be able to rotate and we won't have to snowblow every time. But this storm was so significant that we each, we, we, we were snowblowing every couple of hours. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Let me I'm see. sure where our, to our listeners in like Canada and Michigan think this is stupid. Where, where to begin, Dave Cameron? Here's a uh, – we do not usually – we do not frequently talk about the Miami Marlins. Yeah. However, I believe uh, – I don't know if, it w- if we recorded this particular conversation or if we uh, if it was just merely one we had uh, when we were in Washington, D.C. However, there was some – we were talking about which, which teams now can be expected to make rational decisions, I think is the question I asked you. And you said – well, what's the answer to that question, Dave? What teams can be expected to make rational decisions? Probably all of them except the Rockies and Marlins. Okay. All of them except the Rockies and Marlins. And the Rockies, of course, are putting up the good fight by signing Ian Desmond, a deal about which we discussed in some Is that what we're calling week. this? We're calling that putting up the good fight? It did. Is that what we called like, the, the Shelby Miller trade last year? Like, look at the Diamondbacks putting up the good fight. Well, no, I'm just saying that they're they're fighting for, uh, on behalf of obscure of, of absurdity. Yeah, right. So they, right, they're punching themselves in the face. That's what kind of face. That's what kind of fight this is. Yeah, well, yeah, right. But I'm saying that they're the absurdity does not have many places to hide now. Uh, right. That uh, the Rockies are, are carrying the torch. <laughs> they are, and I think that I think you could say that perhaps they have an argument that the Marlins don't because the Marlins decisions typically do come out of they there are a product of some sort of reason, right? But it is normally Sort of like um, it's it, it has all, all, everything to do with the owner of that that club. Yeah, the Marlins are rational if you believe that the um, baseball team that they own is a money making operation and not a entertainment based operation. Uh, the Marlins have done very well at extracting money from their franchise. Okay, well, I wasn't even generally uh, what people do with their businesses. Right. Although baseball, of course, I think what they're expected to be stewards, aren't they? To some extent, yeah, we've had. I think we've had this discussion on the podcast before, where the owner isn't necessarily. It's not their team in the sense of like they do own it temporarily, but right, they they are part of a lineage of owners, and they're expected to be able to keep it in good shape for the for the fan base and for future owners. Yeah, and of course, some of them are better at uh, preserving that ruse than others. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, Jeff Luria. I, would, I was actually going to ask you about Colorado, but I'm, but now that you've brought it up, they fit particularly well into this conversation. Uh, they signed, in addition to you, in the meantime, they have signed Mike Dunn. This, Mike, this might actually be a more particular sign, a more peculiar signing. They signed Mike Dunn, a left-handed reliever to a three-year deal. Is that right? Yeah, three years and $19 million for a almost replacement-level pitcher. Could you – all right, so uh, sometimes I'll say these things to you because uh, because we always want to give uh, – we always want to explore every angle here, Dave. But what is – if you were to give the benefit of the doubt yeah. to the, to Colorado in this particular case, how would you go about doing it? 
uh, it's hard to get pitchers to go to Colorado on purpose, so therefore you have to pay them more to do so because it's career suicide to go pitch in Colorado. Uh, so they cannot sign free agent pitchers at market price. Uh, so therefore, if they want to have pitching and they don't have internal developed options, we should not hold them to the same price constraints as we hold everybody else to because they don't have the same pool of available free agents to sign. That's the generous reading of this move. The reality is they could have just claimed someone on waivers who doesn't have a choice, who's almost as good as Mike Dunn, uh, or, you know, found some random minor leaguer who's almost as good as Mike Dunn and just stuck him in the bullpen. Um, but if you assume that they could only improve their bullpen through free agent signings, then we can give them a little bit of a, a pass on overspending on, on pitching because pitchers are going to demand a premium to go there. On the other side, they don't seem to be getting discounts on hitters, so maybe they just shouldn't play in free agency. He also, um, I, I mean, the Phillies just just conducted a trade. They sent they sent very little away for uh, for Clay Buckholtz, yeah, who is being paid. I, I don't know, thirteen million dollars doesn't sound like a crazy salary for Clay Buckholtz, who you know is uh, is capable of putting up a two win season probably, or would uh, would be uh, I don't know probably a decent piece in a bullpen himself, wouldn't he? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that would like. I think the Rockies would say, hey, look, we didn't have 13 million to spend on one pitcher. Mike Dunn cost us 6 million, not 13 million. So Buckholz was more than twice as expensive. And they wanted a left-hander. So Buckholz isn't necessarily a, uh, a fit for the kind of pitcher they were going for. Uh, but I do think that in general, the point is that you can acquire pitchers, uh, without having to dip into free agency like the Phillies did with Buckholz. Maybe the Phillies is a bad team who pitchers don't necessarily want to go play for intentionally. Uh, they, they were able to acquire a veteran pitcher. Uh, by just taking on money, and I think that exists in the game. There are left-handed relievers out there who teams would be able to uh, would be willing to move their contracts, and the Rockies could have approached one of those teams and said, "Hey, we'll take this guy," and that way we don't have to pay Mike Dunn nineteen million dollars. You understand when when we are uh, putting together the list of players uh, whose names we will submit to readership, the readers, uh, for the purposes of contract crowdsourcing. Uh, you know, I send you a list. And then you say, well, you could cut this guy out. Or you should probably yeah. add these guys. Right. And then, of course, I always miss someone in this like case. You're you <laughs> somehow. Right. But um, um, and it's I've made other egregious errors in the past. That's fine. Well, it's not great. It's not great. But I haven't been fired for this. Is the most egregious error, I think. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Yeah. But um, at no point did uh, was Mike. Dunn's name invoked, to the best of my knowledge, <laughs> no. and nor uh, nor do I think that we regard it even today as an error. Yeah. No, Mike Dunn is not. So we we put out the top fifty free agents. Mike Dunn was probably not one of the top hundred free agents of this class. Uh, I think we could have gone another fifty before we got to the point where we considered, hey, should we should we crowdsource Mike Dunn? Uh, because Mike Dunn's just not very good. Well, and, and it, as any in all cases, uh, I will at least soften. Uh, the language a bit by saying uh, this is not, from at least from my point of view, it's not to cast aspersions on Mike Dunn himself. It's just a question of uh, it's probably more the frustration that someone who follows Colorado uh, you know, with some enthusiasm, not the state, the team, the Colorado Rockies, uh, who follows the team with some enthusiasm, they might be disappointed at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think the Rockies have developed a reputation for doing curious things. And this offseason, they are just reinforcing that to some degree. I mean, I think, like, 
I know some people, even some people on our staff, think the Rockies are not that far away from contendership, and the Rockies themselves seem to think that. But I, when I look at this roster, I think it's just very difficult to look at this team and look at the National League West and look at the Dodgers, look at the Cubs, look at the Nationals, uh, you know, even look at the Cardinals and Giants and, like, the teams that are ahead of them and say, you know, if we just had a slightly better lefty one-out guy, and we're in. Because, uh, like, this doesn't this move doesn't move the needle at all. Like, the Rockies are at least three players away. From being three, set three, three like er, solid everyday regular players, uh, you know, I think they've they've still clearly got some holes. Even with Ian Desmond, I don't don't think they have a very good first baseman now. Their catching situation is an issue. Um, their starting pitching has some upside, but there's still some weakness there, especially at the back end. Um, they they're short, and their bullpen is one of the worst in baseball. So they're they're short several significant pieces. To look at this roster and say. You know, I think we're one mic done away from making a run. I I don't know how you get there. <laughs> I would like. Do you think that the that sentence has ever been uttered in in, in a closed doors meeting? We're mic done away. We're one mic done away from contending. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm guessing the Rockies' response would be like, "We know that Mike Dunn isn't a difference maker, but we just needed a better bullpen." But I would argue that like. Mike Dunn doesn't actually make your bullpen all that much better, and now you don't have $19 million. I mean, I think, like, uh, it was Joe Sheehan or somebody on Twitter pointed out, like, they just spent $89 million on uh, Mike Dunn and Ian Desmond. For that money, they could have had Edwin Encarnacion. Or almost any free agent in this class. Maybe not Cespedes, but, like, any other free agent in this class. To think that you would rather have Desmond at first base and Dunn in the bullpen than Encarnacion? It's crazy pants. Yeah. I mean, they could have had any of the relief pitchers that are in that they, Right. That's a Roldis Chapman money, right? Like, uh, I mean, I, you know, you could think the relievers are overpaid and, you know, um, spending five-year deals on, on and Chapman and Jansen probably were going to Colorado anyway. Uh, maybe the Colorado price would have been $120 million or something. But, like, they just spent the equivalent of frontline closer money on Ian Desmond as a first baseman and a bad left-handed specialist. Right. When I gave you this prompt, I was not ex- – uh, expecting any discussion of the Rockies, but I was expecting a, dis- a discussion of the Marlins, whom, as you say, are uh, one of the l- one of the teams upon whom we can depend to make uh, curious decisions. The Rockies uh, are also part of that group, as you know, that fraternity, as you note. Um, th- now, here's the thing: I know, of course, when you see that a club has has uh, made a particular move. Uh, for me, when I see that. I'm always uh, the the that club's previous moves, the organization's previous moves, color that move. So if I if I were to have seen, for example, that the Cubs acquired Brad Ziegler and Junichi Tozawa this past week, I would have thought, well, I would have thought it was a smart move, and also that they were continuing their trend of acquiring former Boston relief pitchers. Right, which they um, do, and they and they did last week with Koji Uehara. With which they did with Koji Uehara, right? So, but in this particular case, I'm wondering because it's the Marlins who did it. Uh, if these are curious moves or if, they, uh, if they're if they reasonable. Yeah, so I think what you're speaking to is actually, like, you're acknowledging your own bias in some ways, and I think we all have this bias. This isn't, like, identify your bias, but, like, that, um, and people have accused us of this over the years, is, like, if the Dodgers make a move, we say, oh, what thing do they see in this player that we don't see 
or if the A's, whatever, like, you know, I think when they signed Billy Bean, or Billy Butler a couple years ago, Eno Saris tried to defend the, the idea of the signing, and was like, maybe there's something to being a designated hitter that's especially valuable, or maybe there's something in Billy Butler, and, and it's not that just Billy Butler's bad and the A's made a bad signing, and so I think people, um, recognize that other people have this bias, though you're not, not as good at recognizing that we all have this bias, but I think there is something, Internally, that we say, like, we already have a preconceived notion of this team. Therefore, if they do something, we will judge it differently than if some other team had done it. That's not really fair, right? Like, Brad Ziegler is Brad Ziegler regardless of who signs him. And his projection should not be based on where he goes and what his GM, the GM who signs him, has done previously. Um, so we should try and get away from that from that mindset if we can, and when we recognize it and say, oh, we think less of this signing because the Marlins did it instead of the Cubs... Um, that's something that we should try and correct for. Um, and I think in this case, uh, I, I think I wrote the Red Ziggler post on Friday or published on Friday before we knew where he was going, and I called it a bargain at the reported price of $17 million. The fact that he signed with the Marlins shouldn't be like, well, it's not actually a bargain. Brad Ziggler is bad because the Marlins have done silly things. It's like, oh, maybe the Marlins actually made did something that makes sense here. Well, so, of course... Uh, we also typically discuss their, uh, the place of the club on the marginal win curve. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And does, is this the type of, of signing that makes sense for uh, a team like the Marlins and their, where they are placed? They're situated on that, that win curve. So I think with a signing like Ziggler, uh, the marginal win curve matters a little bit less because uh, assuming that he pitches anything like Brad Ziggler for the last decade, he is 37, there's some risk there, maybe his arm blows out, but like if he's healthy and pitching reasonably well, the Marlins would have a, you know, one and a half years, $12 million good relief pitcher to move at the deadline, probably be able to recoup uh, some kind of talent for that contract, uh, and potentially have spent $4 million to get Ziggler for half a season in which they figured out if they were good enough to contend, and if they're not, turn that $4 million in spent salary into a prospect that's maybe worth more than the $4 million they would have spent to acquire that prospect anyway. So I think with a guy like Ziggler, who's probably got some positive value at the deadline assuming he pitches like he has in the past uh, this is not really a big downside move for the Marlins and obviously if they're contending then they have a good reliever at not a crazy price. Is this just essentially, is there just a totally different market slash economy for relievers than there is for any other type of player? Yes, by a mile. Okay. So this is yeah. uh, the, the, the relief pitcher market exists entirely on its own and it relief pitchers basically are not interchangeable with any other type of asset in baseball uh, in terms of how the economics work. In terms of how the economics work, except, I mean, you have to evaluate them at some point, right, in order to make trades. Yes. So, like, you do have to say, like, how much is a reliever? Should I spend on relief pitching or versus some other thing in my uh, on my team? Should I upgrade at this spot or that spot? But I think teams look at it and say, bullpens are essentially necessary. You have to have good relievers in order to go deep in the playoffs. And especially now with, uh, we just saw how the playoffs operated this year, they're becoming more and more important. Um, so I think that teams are no longer looking at it and saying, I can punt on the bullpen like I used to do five years ago. Like, like Kevin Towers was notorious for just building good bullpens out of guys no one had ever heard of. Um, and, you know, having low cost, um, you know, dominant bullpens by just acquiring guys who don't walk anyone and strike everyone out. Now, baseball's figured this out now, right? Like, you, you can't go just find some guy who's gonna put up a, you know, 
15 strikeouts for nine, <laughs> like a you know generic starting pitcher in Double A, turn him into a dominant reliever and get that guy for nothing. Like that doesn't doesn't have it anymore. And so when we see like the prices for guys like Ken Giles, who before he became you know one of the the dominant household names and had racked up saves for three years, he already fetched a huge return. Anyone who looks like a potentially good reliever is going to cost an arm and a leg now. And so I think it's more difficult to kind of punt on the bullpen and say, I'm going to build a bullpen on the cheap and spend my money elsewhere. Right. Uh, the Okay, so the Marlins, in addition to Ziegler, they also signed Junichi Tozawa for two years and maybe $12 million. Does that sound right? Yeah, two twelve is kind of this year's new one-year deal. Uh, I think basically everyone who's kind of like an interesting, somewhat useful role player is getting the two twelve contract. Yeah, that's right. Well, we've seen it, uh, what, Steve, Steve Pierce signed something like that, yeah. Sean Rodriguez, yep. Uh, and then, and Matt then recently, Joyce. Matt Joyce, and then also, uh, Eno Saris wrote about him on Tuesday morning is Dan Hudson. Yeah, Dan Hudson got the 212. So I think this is at least the fifth or maybe the sixth 212 deal we've seen. This is clearly the cool contract of the winter. I think Charlie Morton got 213, so he was close. So is it, 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 it as Eno pointed out, they all fit, uh, well, if you want to attempt to cre- create a, uh, a category for them, they're all a bit. They're, they're players, all of them that we've just men, mentioned. They've shown something, yeah. but they're also they have. They, if perhaps if they're used in the right role, or if something they figure out, if they become the best version of themselves, then they possess value. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess the idea is like this is a, a little bit of a bet, and we're going to put we're going to give you a little bit more money and a second year. So that's more security for the player, and also if that player does end up um, becoming that best version of himself, then the player, then the team has him for two years. Yeah, I mean, I think basically what we're saying is year inflation instead of salary inflation, right? So like these guys for the last few years, this kind of player has made somewhere between four to eight million dollars a year in free agency, but usually on a one-year deal. Uh, and so now we're seeing teams trying to outbid each other for these th- for these types of players, but no one really wants to pay. 10 or 12 million dollars for a guy who's going to get 300 at bats a year like Sean Rodriguez or Matt Joyce or Steve Pierce or might throw 50 innings like Tozawa or Dan Hudson uh, and potentially not even high leverage innings and so I think what teams are saying is look we'll give you the second year in order to give you more total guaranteed money uh, and then it does give us a little bit upside whereas if you if you break out or if you um, do kind of reach that, pot- that potential level that you've shown in flashes, then all of a sudden we have an underpriced player for the next year. Maybe we can give you a larger role. So it seems like a, a little bit of a win-win from both sides is uh, instead of just paying more in salary for that one year and then losing the player is get them for that second year, bet on the upside. And, you know, if you uh, if the player doesn't work, it's it's not really any different wasting $12 million over two years than wasting $12 million over one. It also helps your luxury tax calculation because it's spread out a lower annual average value. So there's a lot of uh, legitimate reasons for teams to inflate by years instead of by salary. It, it, speaking of your inflation, isn't that something that happened in hockey at one point? Where you uh, get like a was it did someone sign like a twenty year contract? Yeah, I mean I think uh early career extensions for hockey turn into very, very long deals. Right, because they have a cap, right? Yeah. And so, so you spread out the salary over as long a period as you can. How how come that hasn't happened to to the same degree in baseball? Well, baseball for one doesn't have a hard salary cap, right? So like the team like the Dodgers could uh who you know, would have the most money to spend 
who would be incentivized to do something like that if there was a cap and would be the most interested in getting around the rules, they can just spend $300 million instead, uh, which they've done previously when you count up all their tax payments and everything. Um, so I think, you know, the lack of an actual hard cap is probably the primary reason. Um, the secondary reason is it takes someone to kind of do that kind of maverick thing, and no one's really... Uh, done that kind of really crazy contract. Like, I actually thought we'd see more longer-term deals this winter after the new CBA came out, because the CBA uh, does, um, with the harsher surtaxes on the higher higher salaries, or higher payrolls, does encourage teams to lower the annual average value of the contracts that they're signing. Uh, I thought maybe we'd see, like, some 39-year-old, you know, like, Chase Utley maybe get, like, a three-year deal or something, right? Like, if you're going to pay Utley $10 million for one year, just tell him, hey, look, you know, we're still going to give you that same $10 million, and maybe we'll front load the contract. Uh, so you get $9 million, then 500000 each of the next two years. You're probably going to retire anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll just give you the full value of what you were expecting in year one. But it's going to be a three-year deal in order to lower your annual average value. I'm a little surprised we haven't seen some team do that. It's up against the luxury tax line and wants to lower their CBT calculation. Uh, we might see that in the future, depending on how many teams get close. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we, we've, we've been speaking a little bit here about... Um, some of the um, massaging that is necessary or that, that might be called for with regard to, to contracts. and uh, But none of it compares to the sort that you posit as a possibility uh, for a team that was going to sign a name, the player, a player whose name I will mispronounce for everyone's benefit, named Shoei Otane. No, Shoei? you got it right. Shoei Otani. Shoei Otani, okay. Yeah. Um Otani is essentially Babe Ruth. I, I don't know, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that seems like a fair comparison. Why not? <laughs> but I mean, in terms of uh, he's well at the same age, perhaps because Babe Ruth. No one knew that Babe Ruth was going to be the Babe Ruth, but he was a player who was proficient both on the offensive and defensive sides of the ball. Not defensive. I mean, he's pitching. Yeah, he's a he's a pitcher. Yeah, uh, Otani is probably the closest thing we've seen in a very long time to being a legitimate two-way player in Major League Baseball. There have been guys like Brooks Kishnick, um, or I think Christian Betancourt's going to maybe do this next year, who, like, can pitch and can sort of kind of hit, like Micah Owings, right? Like Madison Bumgarner can hit okay. But, like, yeah, there was a David, there was David... There was a guy on the Red Sox who played first base for them. Mitch Moreland could theoretically do it. I think he's got yeah. a good arm. I mean, right. There are hitters who, you know, pitched in high school or in college or whatever and throw hard, um... But there aren't really guys where you're like, I would like this guy to hit fourth in my lineup on day if he's not pitching. And Otani was the best pitcher in Japan and the best hitter in Japan last year as a 22-year-old. That's spectacular. And the, uh, as, as we've seen, play, of course, players from Japan, uh, they've certainly a number of them have certainly held their own in the majors. So this is not, it's not a, it, it's not the same thing as dominating the Cuban League, for example, where where there's a huge. Uh, there's a huge gap between the, the most talented and least talented players. Yeah, I mean, I think um, what we've seen historically is that Japanese players who come over, I think, have outperformed what the expectations have been. Like, with almost every significant player, maybe with the exception of, like, Masahiro Tanaka, who had a lot of expectations, has pitched very well, but, like, has probably pitched two expectations. Almost all of the big-name guys have come over. I guess Hideki Rabu was a Hideki boss. Hideki Rabu was a right. teamwork out. So, like, I mean, so they're, like, it's not 100%, right? But, like, the success rate on Japanese imports has been exceptionally high when you compare them to almost anything else. 
Um, and it feels like the mental discount that people still put on the translation from Japan to Major League Baseball is still too high. Right. Now, here's the thing, though. Uh, as you noted in a piece you wrote, I think the was it uh, Monday or was it the end of last week? It doesn't matter, really. Um, you, you note that with the new CBA, the absolute most a team can spend on its – uh, on an international, on an international free agent, the absolute most, if they take advantage, both of trading for what uh, bonus pool allotment, and also give all the money away. I think it comes out to like nine million or seven million. Nine, nine million if you are a low revenue team. Seven point two if you're a high revenue team. Right. Whereas, I mean, what compares that for to... international players under the age of twenty-five? Okay, and and Otani is what twenty-one at this point. 22, right. So he would be, and I think that he's talking about coming over after 2018, is that right? Well, so the original report was that he was going to come over after next season, 2017. Uh, And now the new rules make it less likely that he should come over because he will Mm -hmm. be subject to these bonus pools. So now there's a financial incentive for him to wait. And then, so did, did the CBA, did it alter any of the language regarding players who signed after 25? No, but before this... The, the limit was for players who were 23 and older. Uh, so they, the language changed to move the players from 23 to 25. So under the old CBA, Otani would have been free to come over next year and sign for $250 million or whatever the market will give him. Um, under the new CBA, if he comes over in the next two years, he can get signed for $9 million or $7 million if he wants to sign with a team that has money. Right. Now you posit... You're, you're, a hypothetical scenario in which Otani signs earlier, right? Or not early, early, but he signs to, you know, for whatever, a $7 million bonus and then makes the league minimum. Yeah. But then, it, uh, because there's no, there's no rules forbidding it, uh, signs a giant extension. Well, that's not entirely true. So there is a clause in the CBA, or there will be when the actual language is written, that says teams are not allowed, or teams, agents, no one is allowed to agree to any kind of contract stipulation that circumvents the rules put in place, right? So, like, Otani cannot, the day after he gets this $7 million signing bonus or $9 million signing bonus, announce a new contract with that team for $200 million. That's an obvious, blatant circumvention of the rules. Major League Baseball would just disallow the contract. Um but the question is, how long does that circumvention of the rules clause last? Like, what's the expiration date on this thing? And how do we even know, right? Like, one of the things that I didn't write in the post that I kind of wish I would have is, say you're a team who does this totally above board. You just bid 7 or 8 or $9 million, whatever you have, on Otani. He decides to sign with you. You don't make any promises about future compensation. You don't say, hey, sign with us and we're going to give you a big contract extension. Uh and then at some point in the future, Otani's good and you want to give him a contract extension, how do you actually convince everybody that you did this illegally, illegally and you did this above board and you there wasn't some prearranged condition? Because I think everybody's going to assume that, you know, something underhanded is going to take place because the difference in market value between what Otani is going to get and what he's worth is so large. Right. Well, I mean, essentially it – what the, the problem with the rule, right, and, and the, this question about circumvention is – there's this tacit admission that the the object of the owners is to wholly suppress the market value or you know, play, uh, the the markets for these players. Yes. 
And so, <laughs> and so what the difficulty is in is in allowing teams actually to compensate to compensate these players they've acquired uh, in a way that makes sense, while also, I suppose, uh, preserving this illusion that uh, you know that that their markets ought to be suppressed. Yeah, I mean, I think like as soon as you sign Otani to a long-term deal. Uh, you're admitting that, like, he's drastically underpaid, right? Like, uh, and so it's gonna become interesting to see, like, how long will the team who gets Otani's rights, if, if he comes over in the next two years and doesn't wait until free agency, which financially is what he should do. Um, or Major League Baseball should change the rule and allow Otani to come over and not be subject to these international pools. Um, but if he comes over, if he's subject to the pools, like, how long will the team who gets his rights wait to start negotiating a new contract just for the optics of it all? And then, like, you know, if Major League Baseball says, hey, look, you know, you can't circumvent the rules, you can't give him a huge contract, how long How long does that apply? Like, I mean, this is what I wrote in the post. It's like, how many dominant starts where he, like, throw, strikes out 15 guys and hits two home runs? How many of those does he have to put up before it's like, hey, we're not circumventing the rules. This guy's just proved he's worthy of like a crazy contract. He's like the Mike Trout of young players, and we want to keep him in our organization for as long as long as possible. And his price is only going up the more often he does this. So, like, I don't, I don't know what the actual practical response would be from an owner who tried to sign Otani to a contract extension like a month into his major league career. If major league baseball said, ah, you can't do that. That's circumvention of the rules. Like. Otani can't be the only player in Major League Baseball not allowed to sign a long-term deal. That's untenable. <laughs> right. And is there a way for a team or a representative from a team to – or even the owner from, from a team to approach Rob Manfred maybe in an unofficial capacity and say something to the effect of, uh, hey, Rob, this guy's really good. Uh, we're not trying to break the rules, but we want to sign him. Yeah, I mean like, I think that would be an interesting – conversation that probably takes place before Otani signs with the team. I mean, obviously Major League Baseball is aware of Otani, right? Like, this is, it's not like this is a secret guy that only one team knows about. So, like, I'm gonna guess that, like, whenever Otani's team decides to post him, there will be, like, a memo sent out from the commissioner's office about, like, this is how this is going to work. This is what you can do, this is what you can't do. Um, and I would bet that any team who's gonna sign Otani We'll probably have a conversation with the commissioner's office about this very issue before they sign him and say like, hey, look, when are we allowed to discuss another contract with him? And, uh, if, if they don't like what the commissioner's office says, it'll be interesting to see if like a team just says, you know, I don't like that rule and I don't think you can enforce it. I'm going to sign him anyway and then let's just see what happens because it's not entirely clear that the commissioner's office has the power of stopping teams from signing contracts whenever they want for whatever reason they want. That's not in the CBA. Uh, one one last question I wanted to address before you fulfill your obligation. You wrote about Jose Quintana today and whether uh, the Astros do in fact need him. You, yeah. on the one hand, uh, probably probably the weakness of the team is its rotation. On the other hand, uh, Jose Quintana would probably require uh, quite a bit in terms of uh, prospects from the Astros yeah. for, for that club to acquire him. And as in here's sort of the crux of the argument. You say what? Who are you pushing into a fourth starter role? That's that's the problem. And who and would only get what one start during the course of a of a postseason run? Yeah, I mean, I think when people think about kind of building a rotation, 
generally, what's looked at is like, oh, if you get Jose Quintana, you're pushing Charlie Morton to the bullpen or Mike Fires. No big deal. Who cares? But if you're the Astros and you think you have a pretty decent chance of making the playoffs, and this is your one big move, like you, you, you know, the cost for Quintana is going to be so high that you're not going to be able to go make some other blockbuster trade at the deadline. Is this the place you want to upgrade where, in the best case scenario, and the one that probably leads the Astros to making the playoffs is Dallas Keuchel pitches really well again, and Lance McCullers stays healthy, and Colin McHugh's a pretty good pitcher. And if those three things happen, and therefore the Astros win the American League West, they don't really need Jose Quintana at that point, because now you've basically got an overqualified number four starter who's going to make one start. And as we saw with the Indians, like especially if you have a guy like a Keuchel, uh, who you can kind of ride a little bit and say, hey, look, you're gonna, you know, um, pitch on three days rest, maybe. You don't even necessarily need that four starter. You don't need a really good one anyway. So, um, it's not that I'm saying that Jose Quintana wouldn't help the Astros. Certainly he would. Jose Quintana is better than anything the Astros have. Uh, having Colin McHugh as your four starter is not that big a deal. Um, you know, it's nice to have a good rotation depth, but if you're looking at it like, I'm going to maybe move Colin McHugh into the potential number four spot in my playoff rotation. Also, I'm going to start Nori Aoki as my regular left fielder in the playoffs, or Jake Marisnik, or, you know, Marisnik will play center, and I'll move Springer over for defense, or I'm going to start Evan Gaddis at DH and stick Beltron in the outfield. Like, these are not great options. Maybe that's the, the area where you say, look, I've got one big move left. Maybe I should be going to try, try and trade for another hitter instead of trade for a pitcher. Right, so in the particular case of Houston, it's the relative weakness of their rotation versus the probably greater relative weakness of their their left field position. Right, the argument isn't that like Jose Quintana isn't a good enough upgrade to to help them. Certainly he is, uh, but when you have what they have, which looks like a pretty good rotation, I think we have them as a top ten rotation right now, and a pretty weak spot in left field. I mean, like an Ioki Marisnik. Gaddis platoon, even with like Beltron, obviously Beltron's gonna be the guy actually playing left field when Gaddis plays, but like Gaddis is the one going into the lineup for Aoki. Like that's bad, especially for a contender. That is not a good group. Um, and I, I think when we look at like the right-handed power hitting outfielders out there, like if you could sign Jose Batista for 360 instead, uh, and keep your young talent instead of trading for Jose Quintana, you might get not necessarily the same upgrade, but not a, dramatically different one, especially in the postseason, from just sticking Batista in left field, uh, or maybe moving him to first base if, like, you know, Ulias Guriel doesn't work out there. It gives you flexibility, and then you still have, you know, Kyle Tucker and Joe Musgrove, and these guys the White Sox are demanding, uh, either to use for yourself or to trade for something else at the deadline, when, you know, if a, if McCullers goes down or Keichel's not pitching well, okay, well, there'll be more pitchers available in July, now you'll know that you definitely need a starting pitcher, and you still have these valuable trade chips available. I think given the arms uh, available now and the price for them, and then the bats available now, I think you could probably get the Brewers to, like, almost give you Ryan Braun at this point. Uh, and Ryan Braun would be a really nice player for the Astros versus having to pay the farm uh, for Jose Quintana and not get the full value of having a Jose Quintana around because your rotation's already pretty good. Okay. Cameron, you have fulfilled your obligation to the program. Okay. I'm sure that's quite a relief. Uh, I hope everything went well. Uh, yeah, so I will say thank you to you, Dave Cameron. Thank you, Carson Stooley. Yes, please stick around for one moment. But in the meantime, I'll say, uh, I'll say that uh, I am Carson Stooley. Wait, what do I say? What do I normally say? I say this has yes. been Carson Stooley. This has been Carson Stooley. This that has been Dave Cameron. Oh no, here it is. Here's what I say. 
has been Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. No, I say that's – no, no. Say thank you, Dave Cameron. Say that has been Dave Cameron. This is like when, uh, you know, when uh, asking the old wise man uh, if he sleeps – if he sleeps with his beard above or below the the sheets, you know, and then he goes home, and he says he never thought about it once ever in his life, and he doesn't know, and then he has like an anxiety attack or something. That was a very long story. That's been Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Eh, I'm not sure that was it. <laughs>